Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome into TYT's A Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. Today, I am joined by a voice when it comes to civil rights. She is a civil rights attorney as well as consumer law attorney, and her name is Cheryl Ring. Thank you so much for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Cheryl, I know there has been just legislation sweeping across the country, particularly in red states that have been attacking members of the trans community, but largely geared toward youth. But it seems there's something different going on in Missouri, is that right? Yes, earlier this year, an amendment was proposed as an addition to a one of the more, I don't want to say run of the mill because none of these are run of the mill. But news reports, as you said, have been focusing more on the anti-trans youth bills. Missouri included an amendment that would have banned all transition care, all trans affirming medical care through the age of 25. Um, citing research that says that age 25 is when um, is when the brain is fully developed. Um, and it's something that unfortunately other states have picked up on as well. Florida since then has also as part of Ron DeSantis's recent uh, spat of executive actions. Uh, Florida has picked up on that as well. and. Now there is talk of bans on on Medicaid treatments in across red states for trans people age 25 and younger. Wow, um, that's that's very very upsetting, particularly because we're not talking about children here. We're talking about banning trans affirming care for adults, people who are 18 and over and can make decisions for themselves or legally should be able to. And you know, seeing something like this come out of Missouri isn't shocking for me, given that they seem to be on the forefront of a lot of back. Um, you know, kind of like uh, backward ideas and mindsets at times. But it seems particularly cruel to deny people access, even if you're citing brain maturity, especially when what liquor laws are what 21 and older. So yes. what am, what am I missing? Oh, you're you're not missing anything. The, the the interesting thing is that a lot of these states already have contradictory laws to this effect on the book. So for example, one of the reactions that we saw to this amendment when it was first proposed was a site was saying, well, if you can drive at 16, you're saying that you can drive at 16 and then another decade before you can transition. You can vote at 18, you can join the military, but you can't take the actions necessary to protect your lively your life and to live as your true self. And and part of it, what makes this so dangerous is it puts trans people in this catch 22. Um, and it's something that is deliberate on the part of uh, transphobes who are passing this legislation. On the one hand, you have people saying that trans people can't be allowed to compete in sports, to use facilities that match our gender identities because we are having gone through natal puberty, we are somehow different than cis people who share our gender identity. So so you see that trans women are different than cis women because we went through natal puberty is the example we hear a lot. But then they turn around and deliberately push back farther and farther and farther the age at which trans people can get that affirming care, thereby increasing the very same differences that they claim are so important. And so what the what this really is, is an, it's an eliminationist ideology. It's the idea that 
we are going to make it so you have no choice but to deal with the very things we're saying make you unfit to be a part of society. It's why bathroom bills are so dangerous for the same reason. Bathroom bills are an example of what used to be called ladder leash laws. Basically an idea that marginalized groups of people were not allowed to use public restrooms because that way they would be forced to stay within one full bladder of their home. And it's actually part of the legislative history of a lot of Jim Crow laws. And in the 19th century, a lot of misogynistic laws that prevented women from leaving the house and owning property. So what we're basically seeing here is a repeat of that increasingly targeting trans adults that is intended to make sure that trans adults do not have access to public spaces. Wow, and so we know that this House Bill 2649 has been introduced and looks like it potentially could go all the way. And that's really scary, especially because we know that the research shows that early gender affirming care and interventions show better outcomes when it comes to transgender and non-binary adults. And I'm sure it does play significantly an impact when it comes to mental health and suicide rates, self-harm and so on and so forth. So it seems like this could have some significant just negative consequences for individuals who are in Missouri, right? Oh Yes, and it goes back to the same kind of eliminationist ideology that I was talking about before. So for example, if you are saying that you have to wait until you're age 25, we know that trans teens, especially trans teens who aren't able to get affirming care, have suicide rates that are the highest of any population in the country, and trans teens of color are even higher than that. And so if you're saying you, we are going to force you to live in a non-affirming environment until you're 25, Frankly, a lot of trans kids aren't going to live that long. And the problem is that's the point of the law. They are essentially saying you must you must either live in a manner that you cannot, you must live in a way that is not your true self, or you can kill yourself. And that is essentially the position that the that bills like what was introduced in Missouri are placing trans youth in all over the country, um, especially now that we're talking about making a putting a ban on Medicaid, uh, a gender affirming care for uh, through Medicaid for trans people up to the age of 25. Uh, that's that's absolutely uh, disheartening, and I know that these are going to be dire consequences, and that it does need to be stopped. So I guess what can people do, or what are the, what are the legal ramifications potentially in terms of intervening should this pass become law? Well, one of the, the difficult things that we saw over the, over the weekend was when a Trump appointee actually blocked a series of executive actions that President Biden had taken to protect trans people under the Civil Rights Act and under Title IX. After the decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, the, from the Supreme Court a few years ago that banned anti-trans discrimination in the workplace, the Biden administration took the next logical step and under the same statute, the same statutory language, attempted to move to protect trans people in educational facilities. And a Trump appointee just blocked that saying that in red states, they do not have to adhere to that. And that's the first step we were seeing in the judicial branch to sort of rolling back Bostock to say, well, we didn't actually mean all of what we said when we said that discrimination on the basis of gender identity is discrimination on the basis of sex as Justice Gorsuch wrote in his decision. And so the problem now is it leaves trans people with very few, with very little recourse if the federal government is not allowed to preempt 
these state laws through power that Congress has expressly granted. Even though that is what 50, 60 years of precedent has established Congress has the right to do and the president has the right to do. It leaves trans people in a situation where if you can't rely on the federal government because Trump appointed judges are going to say the federal government cannot preempt contrary state action. You at that point are looking under your own state constitution. You're looking under other statutory provisions that maybe haven't been explored before. Equal protection is one that I know some people have been looking at. But largely the problem is we're living in a strange new world, especially post Roe, where gender identity is one of those rights that Justice Alito wrote has this is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Justice Alito, as you're aware, rattled off a whole list in Dobbs of rights which are not deeply rooted and being trans unfortunately is one of them. And so the problem is we're sort of in this post row world where we don't know what the courts are going to do when it comes to a right to privacy and bodily autonomy. And we're still trying to figure out how far will the courts go to protect the right to bodily autonomy that until very until earlier this year was considered as a given. And so since that right technically no longer exists, we're trying to figure out what other ways can we look to protect our bodily autonomy in a post row world. Yes, and I think that that's something we all need to be invested in. Unfortunately, a lot of people think if it doesn't impact me directly, then I'm not going to use my voice, not fully appreciating that even if you do not care about members of the trans community, it means the rolling back of other privacy rights and rights that are attached to you that you do enjoy. And so I do hope people truly give this some thought and fully understand that their voices need to be used in the now. And so what efforts have you seen at the larger level in terms of organizations, grassroots movements to try to curb some of these efforts. Well, the first thing that I've uh, that I've noticed, and I've been very heartened by, is I've been noticing a lot of coordination between uh, trans activism and reproductive rights activism, and. Partly that's because they go hand in hand. Reproductive rights and bodily autonomy for trans people are two sides of the same coin. But also there is this myth out there that trans people don't need abortion care. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Trans men and non-binary people also need abortion care. And these laws that are preventing that kind of gender affirming care that trans men and non-binary people need also make it more likely that they are going to need abortions if they're not able to medically transition or if they're not able to be uh, be treated medically in, a, in an affirming way. And so one of the things that I've been heartened by is seeing that there has been some coordination on that front. I'd like to see more of it, I think it's really important. Um, but I, I have been heartened to see that a lot of people have been recognizing these are two sides of the same coin. The other thing that I have been heartened by is a lawsuit in Florida Um, that basically said that there is a religious right to bodily autonomy that the Dobbs decision potentially infringes. I don't know where that is going to go, but as a Jewish person myself, and it's a rabbi bringing this lawsuit, I think that's an important step. Um, If we are going to be saying that a right to religious freedom is the highest and best right, I mean, as as the, the Supreme Court seems to believe, there are a lot of faiths that specifically recognize both a right to bodily autonomy when it comes to being trans, a right to bodily autonomy with respect to abortion, and a right to bodily autonomy with respect to sexual orientation. And so I think that's important to recognize also that this is not just a one-way street in that regard. And so this is a it's a developing situation. I think that we have not seen the last of this. This is going to be fought out in the courts for months and years to come.
Absolutely, it is. And I definitely, definitely encourage everyone to very much get involved so that we can stop these efforts and also make the changes and advancements to our progress that we need. And so thank you so much for that enlightening insight. Cheryl, can you please tell the viewers where they can find more of you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am on Twitter at ring, R-I-N-G underscore Cheryl. You can also visit me online, www.cherylringlaw.com with an S, not a C. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's Adrian Lawrence with the conversation right back at you. And this time I'm joined by the executive director and CEO and the co-founder of Moms Rising. That's Kristen Rao Finkbeiner. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, so we've had this talk, we've had a lot of talk and hopefully there will actually be some action. And I know that you brought together Moms Rising to create action, particularly when we're talking about now this impact of reversing Roe v. Wade and the effect it's gonna have on American families. What do you think a lot of people are missing or misunderstanding? Right now, a lot of people are missing the fact that six out of 10 people who have and need abortions are moms already. And research is showing when you ask moms what's happening, that it's out of love and support of their family. So we really need to talk about what's happening with abortion and about bodily autonomy. Knowing that everybody should be able to decide if they're going to have children and if so, when they have children and how many children to have. No, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the impact that this will have because there's this kind of notion or idea in mind that people who get abortions are individuals who were making irresponsible decisions or for some reason are not married and haven't been living almost this Christian ideal life. Whereas this is something that can definitely impact people who are already parents who are in marriages. And so what do you want people to understand? I think it's time for people to understand that their voice, their story, they're reaching out to their member of Congress and to their state legislatures is more critical than ever. We're at a point where with Roe v. Wade being overturned, a lot of the power has been turned back to the states. So we need action at all levels. We need Congress to take action. We need the president to take executive action. We need governors to take action. And we also need people to donate and contribute to local abortion care funds. We have a moment of emergency where people are going to lose their lives because access to abortion care has been rolled back in a large number of states. But abortion care is still available in many states. So if people are in crisis, they can go to abortioncarefinder.com and they can still get engaged and involved with Planned Parenthood, with NARAL, with Moms Rising and others. But the time is now to really raise your voice and make those phone calls and say, our body, our choices, and really ask for that bodily autonomy to be restored. Absolutely, and so when we are having these conversations with the moms out there and members of American families, what are you hearing people say on the ground? People are in crisis. I mean, look, we are already in crisis because we've been in a pandemic that has become an endemic. And the data is in and women of moms have experienced compounded health and economic harms due to the pandemic. and. BIPOC women have experienced even more compounded health and economic harms. We have right now a situation 
were the very same elected officials who are pulling back our right to abortion care, our right to bodily autonomy, are those that are standing in the way of affordable childcare. Childcare costs now more than college. Are those who are standing in the way of access to paid family medical leave. We're the only industrialized nation in the world without paid family medical leave for a new baby or for a serious health crisis. And those who are standing in the way of maternal health. Right now, before abortion care was rolled back, we were the only World Health Organization where maternal mortality was increasing, meaning more moms were dying in childbirth, then decreasing. And when you look deeply into those stats, we're seeing that black women are dying three to four times the rate of white women. We have a maternal health crisis before abortion care was rescinded. That crisis is now going to be compounded in communities who are on the edge at risk and experiencing structural racism already. It's a crisis, so really it's time to also Check your vote, make sure you're registered to vote and make sure you're voting for candidates who support what really matters to families. Yes, that would definitely seem to be something that is incredibly important also to address in part because as you had mentioned, when individuals were already struggling coming out of the pandemic and still dealing with these sets of almost new wave of pandemics that keep coming through. It's very scary when people don't necessarily know whether they can even access healthcare for that. And whether they are going to be able to have the healthcare access that is abortion care in and of itself. And so, for people out there who are on there, those happen and don't necessarily know, what would you recommend to them outside of simply, let's say, voting or contacting a member of Congress? Is there anything else they can do? Well, you know, really sharing your story is so important. If you have a story of experiencing the need for abortion care yourself or a family member or a friend or have been involved in healthcare for women, share your story with your friends, share your story with your elected officials, share your story with the media, with organizations, because our stories are powerful and they do three key things. One, stories let us know we're not alone. We really need to share our stories so that we know that when this many people are facing the same types of crisis at the same time, we don't have an epidemic of personal failures or personal health crisis alone. We have a national structural issue that we can and must solve together. Two, stories let the media report accurately what's going on. This is not a small group of people who need access to the full suite of reproductive health care. This is over 20 million people in the United States of America. And three, our stories let our elected leaders who do not yet reflect who we are as a nation in terms of our representation, know what's happening in our lives. There should be no forced births in the United States of America. Every birthing person should be able to have access to adequate health care and shouldn't have to travel long distances or pay exorbitant amounts of money to get it. And when we think about this, we need to think about that not everybody can travel long distances. Not everybody has paid family medical leave or paid sick days or paid time off. Not everybody can take time off work. Some people are in situations where they can't let their family or their partner know that they're needing abortion care. So we need everybody, absolutely everybody to be able to have access to the health care they need, including abortion care, where they are, when they need it, and at an affordable cost. 
Absolutely, that access is so incredibly important. And it definitely seems that other leaders in other countries and nations seem to recognize that. And that they're also definitely seeing the United States as having taken a step backwards, being more regressive as opposed to progressive, yet still feeding this ideology of being a world leader. How do you think this makes us look or how this is going to impact the United States in the long run when it comes to interaction? interacting with other nations. It's not a good look. I mean, there has already been data out that we are regressing as a country in terms of gender equity and equality. Just looking at the measures about the policies that we have access to and what that does to us shows what's happening. So right now already before Roe v Wade was overturned, being a mom was a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than being a woman or gender. And moms of color experienced compounded wage discrimination due to structural racism to the extent that black moms are earning just 54 cents to a white dad's dollar and Latina moms just 46 cents to a white dad's dollar. This is not okay. And when other countries look at what's happening in the United States, it puts us in a bad position, not just in terms of what people think about us, but also in terms of our international competitiveness. Jerome Powell, our Federal Reserve Chair recently said in a congressional hearing that because we don't have access to childcare, because we don't have a care infrastructure, we are losing out in international competitiveness. So when we take the full step back, and I love always taking a full step back, we can see that in our consumer fueled economy, Women and moms make three quarters of purchasing decisions. And so when we are pushed out of the labor force, when we are pushed aside because we don't have access to the full healthcare suite that we need, including abortion care, when we can't make ends meet, then we are in trouble because we are fueling the economy. We're 50% of the labor force, three quarters of families rely on the wages of moms to make ends meet. And so then we start seeing things like supply chain issues because people are pushed out of the labor force when they can't afford childcare. We start seeing those supply chain issues increase our inflation. And one of the things that we're seeing is that Moms and women and people who are birthing people are part of the solution to lifting our economy up and out of the inflation crisis that we're in right now. And halting our access to the full suite of reproductive health care makes things worse for our economy and our international competitiveness. Absolutely, yes, and it's so interesting because there is just research on research on research confirming this. And yet we seem to be engaging in legislative action and behavior that is counter to it, which would seem entirely counterproductive. But then again, when you're talking about the white male supremacy patriarchal rule, sometimes I guess that is definitely more important than being an actual world leader to each his own. But I know in the meantime, we definitely have to fight against it because it is a problem. But I know there are so many people, so many entities and organizations out there fighting against it. And so can you talk a little bit about your organization, Moms Rising, and what you all are doing specifically to combat this reversal of Roe v. Wade? Yeah, and I just want to take a moment to talk a little bit about this moment in time and hope. And just to tell all the listeners, all the viewers of any gender, that now is the time to embrace hope as a discipline. And hope means to me, optimism and hard work combined. And that hard work means keep pushing even when you read headlines in the newspaper that say we are facing the impossible. So keep pushing 
get registered to vote, make sure you vote and call your members of Congress. So what does Moms Rising do? Moms Rising is an organization of over a million people. We have members in every state in the nation working to increase family economic security, working to end discrimination and to build a country where every single person can thrive. And we do that through moving four levers of change. The first lever of change is legislative change. Legislative change at the state and federal level to help lift families. Some of the legislation that we're happy to have helped recently passed are things like the child tax credit checks that came out in 2021 and lifted more than 40% of children out of poverty. The largest single year drop in child poverty in the history of our nation. So that's an example of the policy. Another lever of change you won't be surprised to hear is voter engagement change. We had over 72,000 mom volunteers helping to get out the vote in 2020 who made more than 30 million get out the vote contacts with low frequency moms. Yes, huge. And then the other lever is corporate change. And then there's culture change. So really talking about the policies, lifting up what's really happening, sharing our stories and changing the culture so that we can see who we are as a country instead of avoid who we are as a country. That is very, very powerful. I wanna thank you so much for all the work that you do with Moms Rising and starting it as well as leading it. Thank you so much and everybody get out there, check out Moms Rising and also continue to keep hope. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, really appreciate it. Thank you.